0: So last week we looked at uh, the story of the, the man who was healed at the pool at Bethesda and, and then following that healing there was, a con- there was a confrontation between Jesus and the Jewish leaders uh, about the Sabbath and about the fact that they believed that Jesus had broken uh, the Sabbath. Uh, verse 18, which we ended with last week, we're going to start with this week because it serves as a transition between that event, that healing event, and that controversy over the Sabbath, and the teaching of Jesus that's recorded in the rest of chapter 5 that we're going to look at today, and then we'll finish looking at that uh, next week. Uh, Verse 18 tells us that after this confrontation, the Jews were were seeking all the more to kill Jesus. And so the Jews were angry that he was, quote-unquote, breaking the Sabbath, which, of course... Jesus wasn't breaking the Sabbath. He was simply not living and not abiding by their narrow and non-biblical interpretation of what they thought the Sabbath should be. Um, But what has them even more angry than him and his issues and the issues around the Sabbath is the fact that Jesus, in his conversation with them, referred to God as his own father, which in that context, they rightly understood him to be saying, I am God. I am equal with God himself. And that just ticks them off. We're going to see that today as Jesus confronts um, them in in some teaching. All right, so with that in mind, let me read from John chapter 5. I'm going to read verse 18 down through verse 29. This is the very word of God. It's holy, infallible, and errant. It's authoritative. God has given it to us that we would know him rightly. We would know ourselves rightly. And then in light of those things, we would walk rightly with him all the days of our lives. So give great attention to the reading. The very word of God. It says, This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, would you give us understanding, ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to believe the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ as revealed here. Help us understand this teaching and help us believe and trust that Jesus, God in the flesh, is the Savior we need. He is our only hope. In his name we pray. Amen. All right. at the the heart of this controversy that, that Jesus and the Jews are engaged in and will be engaged in is the fact that the Jews are sort of hardwired to be monotheistic. It was pounded into their minds and their hearts from the earliest moments. And we understand why. One of the The one passage that every Jew would have memorized was what is known as the Shema. In our Bibles, it's in Deuteronomy 6. And it begins like this. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Mono. Monotheistic. One God. Now that passage goes on and says, Therefore you should love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. You should take these truths and write them on your Foreheads and your hands and your door frames. And, uh, and So they did that. and So this is what they memorized. That the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and we should love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and mind. The Lord is one. Monotheism. So not only that, but just a few hundred years before Jesus is here walking on earth, the Jews have been in exile. Now if you remember from our study of the Judges and in other places, the reason that the Jews were in exile was because they had left the one true God to worship other gods. They had chosen to be polytheistic, in a sense, instead of monotheistic, and God had told them, if you worship gods other than me, the one true God, then things are gonna go badly for you, and they did. So God, they started worshiping other gods, and because of their denial of monotheism, in that sense, their embrace of other gods, God sent them into exile, got their attention, so they've come back home, and they now take this seriously. Now, of course, we've seen them waver back and forth all through history, but at this point in time, these Jews, Jewish leaders are committed, maybe even militarist, militaristically committed even, to monotheism, that there is one God. Okay. Now, Jesus has shown up on the scene and said, I am equal to God. Now, they believed that a Messiah was coming of some sort, but not necessarily God himself in the flesh one who would represent God and do the work of God. But Jesus has shown up. He said, I'm the Messiah, and I am God in the flesh. And these Jews who are leery of anything that smells as polytheism at all are going, wait, that makes two gods. There's a God in heaven, and now you're God walking on earth. That can't be. You're a heretic. You're blaspheming. We're going to kill you. Because we're, we're done with this polytheism stuff. We're going to protect the people from this. So you see their intentions. But there's a problem with them and their intentions, and their understanding. They're wrong. Jesus is God in the flesh. He is what he claims to be. Now, it doesn't make sense to them, and we struggle as well with understanding this Trinity thing, that there's one God and three persons. There's one being, three personalities, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, who have existed eternally as three persons in one God. And we go, wait, that makes my head hurt. Yeah, it does. It makes my head hurt, too. I've read books this thick on it. It still makes my head hurt. But it's true. It's the clear teaching of Scripture, and it's also what the church has believed from the early church fathers. They wrestled and fought about this for years and years and years, and they made declarations. We had the Council of Nicaea, the Nicene Creed, which we read sometimes, which clearly says Jesus is the only begotten Son of God, equal with God. I paraphrase that there. When you go look up the Nicene Creed, it doesn't say exactly that. But as the, as the teaching of the church throughout the ages. That there's one God, there's three persons in God. And so we're not denying monotheism. We're not polytheistic when we say there's God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. We're saying, no, one God, monotheism, and three personalities. Now, we don't believe that those three personalities kind of, that there's one God who changes personalities over time. Sometimes he's God the Father, sometimes he's God the Son, sometimes he's God the Spirit. That's called modalism. We call that a heresy. That's not right. That's a a false teaching, a false understanding of who God is. God always, for eternity past and into eternity future, exists as God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three personalities, one God. All right? You got all that? Everybody's clear on the Trinity now, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Josh Moody wrote a commentary on this passage. In his commentary, he points out that the heart of the Jewish anger here is that that fear that Jesus is rising up in power and seeking to lead the Jewish people out of monotheism again. The threat of exile would be upon them again. So that's where this fear comes from. And so with their background, you can understand that there was, there was really nothing in their minds that could imagine the concept of God putting on flesh and becoming a man. Um, a walking, talking human being. But that is exactly who God has claimed to be. And when we think about Jesus and his work on earth and him being incarnated as God in the flesh, we believe that, you know, that, God, that Jesus is God and he's man. Now some people would say that he's half God, half man, but that's also a heresy as well. We believe that Jesus exists, eternity past, and he took on flesh. He, he then became He's 100% God, 100% man. He didn't lose any of his godness and he became completely human, born of a woman by the Spirit. The Apostles' Creed says he was conceived by the Holy Spirit without violating the virginity of Mary. Jesus was implanted in her womb miraculously by the Spirit. She carried him and birthed one who, because she was human, was human, and because the Spirit was the one who conceived him, is all God. You got your minds around that, right, too. That's a little easier than the Trinity, actually. But it's so miraculous. We go, can this be true? Yes, it's true. This is what we believe. That God came in the flesh and lived and breathed and and worked and ultimately died for our sins. To these Jews who are in conflict with Jesus, like I said, this is not only outrageous, it's blasphemous. And blasphemy... Earns the death penalty in that day and age. And so they're seeking all the more to kill Jesus. That's where we're at in this story. In our passage today, this is what the teaching of Jesus is trying to show. In the face of this opposition and this threat of persecution, even to the point of death, that Jesus is, is going to be persecuted, Jesus doesn't shy away from this. He actually doubles down on the fact that he is equal to God. He is God in the flesh. Let's look at it. Look at verse 19. It says, So Jesus said to them, so he's talking to these Jews that have confronted him. His disciples would have been there with him as well and probably a crowd of other people. Remember, he's in Jerusalem at what's probably the Passover. It's a feast, but it's probably a Passover feast. So his ministry has been go- on earth has been going on for a year now. It's probably been a year since he was baptized by John. And his, his public ministry started. And so here he is at, his, at the Passover. So massive amounts of people around. And all this strife with his Jewish leaders is going on. And so Jesus is going to teach. So Jesus says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And then he says, in greater works than these he will show them, so that you may marvel. Let's talk about it that for a second. He begins his teaching here by assuring everyone that he's not superior to God the Father. Jesus isn't showing up and going, I'm the true God. That God in heaven you've been worried about, don't worry about him. I'm I'm God now. No. He says, no, me and the Father, God in heaven, are one. We have the same purpose, the same will. That's part of that same being, that monotheism. They cannot do anything separately from one another for they have the same will. And so, They're working. They will. They will operate with one will. That's the point he's making. He isn't this rogue agent who has come to Earth to take matters into his own hands, sort of as if he's in rebellion against the will of God or anything. No, that's not the case. He's not even a kid trying to prove his independence from his father. It's actually the exact opposite of that. He and the father are one. They're always on the same page. They're working to accomplish the one will of God. Jesus isn't a separate God coming to chart a new path. He's the one true God. To worship God rightly is to worship Jesus. To worship Jesus is to worship God. He's equating these things. He's being clear that this is what's going on. Jesus is claiming the ability to do what only God can do. And so here we find Jesus looking back to the fact that he's just healed a man who was lame for 38 years. Remember, that's the context of this controversy we're in. He's healed this man. He did it on the Sabbath. Remember, the Jewish leaders were more concerned about the man carrying his bed on the Sabbath than they were the fact that he had been miraculously healed from his impairment, his lameness, after 38 years. And they're more worried that he's carrying a mat than celebrating with him that there's been this healing that occurs. And so in light of this, he says, you're going to see me do even greater works than this. You think that's something, making a man who's been lame for 38 years walk? Just wait. You're going to see even greater things. What things? He says that just as God can raise the dead and give life, so the Son also gives life to whom he will. All right, later in the Gospel of John, we're going to see Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. Dead. In the tomb, wrapped up in cloths, stinking dead. And Jesus raises him from the dead. But I think Jesus also has something more in mind here. If you look down, it says, you know, an hour is coming and is now here. This is verse 25. It says, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear him will live. Now, this raising from the dead seems to point to the eternal life that God brings through faith and the salvation that he's promised through the covenant with Abraham. Those things that if you believe and trust in the promise that I've made, you're going to have life eternal. And So he, he's, he's talking about that. He's also, you know, that this thing that through Abraham's family, salvation would come to the world. Just as God the Father raises dead sinners to new life, so does Jesus, for he's God in the flesh. So he's got two things going on. One, I'm going to do things like raise Lazarus from the dead. But two, I'm also going to take spiritually dead people and give them life. So there's two things going on here. Two aspects to this miraculous thing that he's going on. And which is greater? Well, Lazarus rose from the dead, but one day Lazarus' body died again. What's greater is to take spiritually dead people who are enemies of God, objects of wrath like all of mankind, as Ephesians 2 says, and give them new life. He's saying, that's even greater than the things that you're going to see me do. Make the lame walk and the blind see and Even the dead rise temporarily. But then, of course, we know that there's another miracle coming. He's going to do more than raise Lazarus with him promised promised eternal life. Jesus himself is going to rise from the dead. He's going to rise. From, they're going to kill him. We know where the story's going, right? They're eager to kill him and they're going to kill him. But he's going to go in that grave. And he's going to rise from the dead. Jesus is going to rise from that death to secure eternal life for all who trust in him alone. As a fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham. For, for that is what he is. He's the promised Messiah. Come to deliver his people from their sins. He didn't come to give Israel military victory. To kick the Romans out of their land. He didn't come. He came for something greater. Those were Temporal things that they were hoping were true. And he says, I'm coming to do something even greater than you could ask for or imagine. I've come to give you life eternal. Even if the world and the Romans or whoever kills you, trust in me and I'll give you life. That's the greater miracle. So the first thing that Jesus points out that only God can do is raise the dead. Physical dead, the spiritual dead. God can raise the dead. Jesus is God and he can raise the dead. Another thing that the Jews believed that only God could do was stand in final judgment of men. And that's where Jesus goes next. The Jewish leaders in confronting Jesus have taken a posture of judgment in relation to his actions on the Sabbath. They put themselves in the place of the judge. They see him doing things that they believe are against the rules on the Sabbath. And so now they're standing in judgment and condemnation of him. They put themselves in a place of, I think, temporal judgment. Now, they're also, in a sense, being sort of eternal judges because they're dealing with his eternality. Is he really the son of God or not? But in their mind, he's not, so it doesn't matter. They are the the judges, a sense, of the Jewish people here on earth. And so these Jewish leaders would have believed that God had given them the authority to enforce his law among his people, his law amongst his people. So in their own eyes, they were the keepers of the law. But there's a problem when you're standing before Jesus and you think you're the keeper of the law and he's the author of the law. (laughs) He's the one who not only has put the law in place, but he's about to say, I'm also the one that's going to judge you according to this law. I'm going to judge you. You think you stand in judgment against me, but I'm actually the eternal judge that all mankind one day is going to stand before. I am the, the greater judge. And so he points out to them here that they actually have no right to stand in judgment against him for he's the one who'll, who will one day stand in judgment of everyone who's ever lived, even these, these Jewish leaders. And so Jesus actually teaches them that the Father will not judge anyone. So they believe that God would judge. And he says, well, within the, the economy of the Trinity, the Father isn't going to be the judge. I'm actually going to be the one who at the last day is the judge who takes that role in the Godhead as the judge of all mankind, as the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God, the Father has given all judgment unto Him. And on that day when judgment occurs, everyone will honor the Son just as they honor the Father. So here's the dagger, though. In verse 23, look what Jesus says. Um, start, okay, starting in 22. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Now here's the dagger that's going to get to the heart of their anger and their problem with him. It says, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. If you deny Jesus, you're denying the one true God. Because this is what the will of God is, to send his Son into the world to redeem mankind. To deny that is to deny the will of God, to press back against what God's actually doing, to say no to the things that God's doing, to deny the work of the Holy Spirit. That, that does this work of transforming people through the truth of this gospel. These guys, their entire lives have centered around trying to honor the father, these Jewish leaders. But they have no intention of honoring this man who's standing before them, Jesus, who they believe is a blasphemous traitor. And he keeps making claims that are more and more and more and more bold. He not only says, I'm the son of God, I'm equal to God. I have the authority of God. And to deny that I'm God is to deny that God is God. We would say he's digging his pit deeper and deeper and deeper, right? But guess what? He doesn't care because even if they kill him, he has victory over death. Yeah. So we know, uh, we know the truth is that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Well, verse 28 points us to a dark, darker reality. When Jesus is talking about how those in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, he's likely referring to two, two realities. The first is the fact that when he returns, remember he dies, he, 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 he rises from the dead, he teaches his disciples, and then he ascends into heaven, in the glory, and one day he's coming back as judge to take his people home and to, to take all to the, to the judgment throne. Where at that point he'll cast some into everlasting life and some into everlasting death. I'm getting ahead of myself. That's coming in a minute. Um, and so th- that's what he's referring to, though. That those who are dead, uh, if he ascends in heaven, our bodies, those of us who have died before he comes, our bodies will actually rise and go to judgment. And so we will exist in our bodies. Those of us who are believers will be, will be entered in, will enter into heaven, enter into a etern- in the fullness of our eternal relationship with God. And will be made whole those who are who don 't believe who have rejected the gospel who don 't believe the gospel who haven 't recognized the authority of the Son, will be cast into eternal judgment and so we know that that 's one of the things that Jesus has in mind as he 's teaching as he 's teaching here, but the other reality is on the same line as we talked about before it 's a spiritual reality. the reality points to the fact that that we are all spiritually dead without faith in Christ and so how does faith come? To spiritually dead people. If we're dead, we can't do anything. We can't believe. Believe that that deadness reaches way to the core of who we are. That left to our own, ourselves, our own wills, we'll, we'll always refuse God. We'll choose, I like to say, we choose something. We'll always choose not God when given the choice within our own being. We're born into sin and we love sin and so we'll always choose sin over faithfulness, over trusting in Christ. But something happens. Something has happened for all of us. For all of us in this room who have trusted in Christ, something has happened. What is that? Jesus has called out to us, even in our death, and we have heard his voice, and we've come out in a new life. So there's a sense in which if we are Christians, we have already experienced a resurrection. Remember Jesus standing before the throne of Lazarus? And and what did he say? Lazarus, come forth. And what did Lazarus do? Come forth. He stood before the man at the pool in Bethesda last week. And he said, essentially, legs work. And what do the legs do? They work. We're going to see it in a couple of weeks. He's going to stand before a blind man. He's going to say, see, eyes work in a sense. And what's his eyes going to do? They're going to work. So there's this miracle going on. So how do the dead hear and obey? Well, in the same way that this lame man's legs started working, when the one who had created those legs spoke with authority and commanded them to work. At that point, they have no choice but to work because their Lord, the one who created them and is in authority over them, has commanded them to work. The authority that Jesus exercises when he heals the lame is the same authority that he exercises when he calls dead souls to life. Now, let's say that I've got a friend who needs a car. And I come after church, and and I ask Todd, I say, Todd, hey, can I see your car keys for a minute? Well, sure. hands me his car keys. And I go to my friend, and I say, guess what? I got you a car. There you go. Here's the keys. Have fun. It's yours. What's the problem with that scenario? (laughs) I have no authority to give away Todd's car. (laughs) I just don't have the authority to do that. It's not mine. I don't own it. Now, if I had gone out there and taken my keys and said, here's my car keys, the bank would actually have a problem because they still technically own my car. But let's assume I own my car. And I'm able to give it to them, and they walk off. You may go, that's crazy. Mitch just gave his car away. But it's my right because I have authority over my stuff. I don't have authority over your stuff. But I do have authority over my stuff. In that same sense, Jesus has authority over everything, particularly our souls. He's made us, He's created us, He's formed us, He's designed how we work, He's put us all together, He's formed us in our mother's womb, even. And now here we are, and Jesus has authority. Over the stuff that Jesus has the authority to command dead legs to spring to life. And he has the authority to make dead men listen to his commands. He's the giver of life. He's the creator of life. He's the Lord of life. And his creation obeys his commands. Now in Daniel 7, Daniel has this vision back in the Old Testament. Daniel has this vision. He's out in exile with with his people, right? So he has this vision that God is sovereign over all the nations and the kingdoms of the world. So he has this vision. We won't get into all the vision, but he has a vision. And what God tells him is, I know you're in exile and you feel like these people have authority over you. But I actually have authority over them. And not only them, but every nation and kingdom of the world. That's what he's trying to communicate to Daniel. And Daniel's going to take that and go give hope to the people. And and so these things are going on. And so he has this vision. And in this vision, there's God sitting on his throne ruling the world. This is essentially what Daniel sees. But then, this is in Daniel 7. 7. verses 13 and 14. He says this. He says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, that's God, and was presented before him. And to him, the one like a son of man who came on these clouds, to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. These Jewish leaders know that passage well. They know what it means to be one like the Son of Man. They equate that because of Scripture. They're clear that Daniel equates that guy with the Messiah that's coming, with God, with a Godlike person, with this one that's promised. All right, so let's look at verse 27 here. In verse 27, it says, Jesus is saying that God has given him authority. So it says, he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. We go, what does that son, that son of man thing it's confusing? Why does it just say he's the son of God? Well, because he's pointing back to this, this passage in Daniel that teaches that the one who comes like a son of man has this great authority. Jesus is saying, y'all can argue about authority all you want to. I am the one who has been given the authority. Over all the nations and kingdoms of the world, over all the people of the world. I am the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That's essentially what he's saying. That's who the Son of Man is. And Jesus is saying, I am the Son of Man that Daniel saw in his vision. And he's come, he's coming to exercise authority and to execute justice. He's coming to bring judgment to the world. And so we've already said we're sinners who deserve condemnation, right? For all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. When the judge comes, he would rightly be able to say to all of us, your sin deserves death. And Jesus is coming in judgment. So how do we escape this judgment? That's the question that should come up in our minds at this point. We should be thinking about this. So what we learn in this passage is that the only way to escape eternal judgment and to pass from death unto life is to hear the word of Jesus and to believe that God has eternal life. In verse 25 and 28 he says this. Let's look at both of them. It says in verse 25 he says, you know, The hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. And then in verse 28 he says, Do not marvel at this. Talking about this authority that he has. He says, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. What Jesus is saying here is that the only way to actually be saved from eternal punishment is to trust that he has come from God and that eternal life comes only through him. You see how big a jump this is for these Jewish leaders who believe that life comes through being good and honoring God and trying to keep his covenant and keep his commandments. And they've tried to be very careful to do all those things. And now Jesus is saying, put your faith and trust in me. I've come to save you. If you can hear this truth about who I am, you will be saved. Because this is a spiritual hearing. It's a life-giving hearing. Of course we know the path that the life of jesus takes it's a path that leads to jesus dying in the place of sinners the ones who who trust him for salvation that like i said the jews believe that they have salvation through their bloodline they're the children of abraham they're the sons of the covenant of sorts uh, but they also believe that like i said through their strict obedience to the law but jesus is telling them you don't just need obedience in the right bloodline you need a Savior. You need salvation. And he is the savior that they need. They need atonement for their sins. He is the lamb of God who has come to take, to take the sins of the world. He is what we need. And this is true for everyone. No one can be good enough to escape this judgment. Everyone's going to stand before the king of creation. The judge of all mankind. And Jesus says here, of course, those who have done good will experience the resurrection of life. Those who have done evil will experience the resurrection of judgment, life, or death. There are no other realities. There are no other options. You can't take option C. And go to Disney World or something. It doesn't work. Life or death. And so but we stop here, and we go, wait, is Jesus teaching salvation by works here? He just said that those who do good will go to the resurrection of life. Those who do, have done evil will go to the resurrection of judgment. What, what is this good that we have to do? Well, it's not keeping the law. We've all failed that test. Jesus said, if you want to keep the law, the standard's clear. Be perfect as the Heavenly Father is perfect. None of us can do that. So, what is this good? This good that we do is that we hear and believe the word of Christ. And that word teaches us that one of the things that is necessary to be declared good on the day of judgment is to admit the reality that we're actually not good. We've got to embrace the fact that we need this Savior who has come in authority over us, it has the ability to, to redeem us. We're sinners who need a Savior, and the only Savior is Jesus Christ, this God-man who has come from heaven to deliver us from the judgment that we all deserve. What great news this is, that we're not like the Jewish leaders, worried about tripping over every little minute part of the law, thinking that God's going to come down on us with, our, with his hammer and crush us. No, this is by grace, through faith, not of yourselves, so that no one be both. This is what God's doing. And he calls us and invites us and makes us alive that we may enter into this with him. And so we become, we walk in obedience, but not obedience to earn our salvation, but obedience that, results, that comes as a result of our salvation. When he changes our hearts, makes us dead people alive, and gives us life, guess what we want to do then? Our new hearts want to worship and glorify God. All the time? No, because our flesh is still involved. We'll talk about that later. But yeah, we, the way we know that someone trusts and loves Jesus, that they've been made alive, is their heart changes. The directory of their life changes towards wanting to live for themselves the things of this world, to live for God and things of the other world, things of the world to come. And so there's hope here. Jesus has come to flesh to lay down his life for sinners. There's hope for the Jewish leaders. There's hope for even the Jewish sinners and the tax collectors that these people are put off by. There's hope even for us, for Gentiles like us who were born outside of the family line of Abraham but still have hope. For it wasn't Abraham's bloodline that saved him or anyone else. The scripture tells us that Abraham was saved by faith. He believed God and it was counted to him or credited to him as righteousness. Because he believed. He heard the word of truth, even in the Old Testament, and believed God. And he walked in faith, trusting that God was going to provide the salvation that he needed. This is the miracle that comes through Jesus. Salvation that is not earned, but comes by grace. By grace, through faith, to everyone who calls in the name of the Lord. That's the good news of the gospel. And Jesus is telling them there's only one hope, that he is the Son of God. He comes in authority. So what does that do for us? Well, we sing... A song earlier, and I'm going to read it to you again because you can turn there. We're going to say Horatius Bonar, my favorite hymn writer, wrote, um, "I was a wandering sheep." In light of what we've just heard, let's listen to this. Hear this again. He says, "I was a wandering sheep. I did not love the fold. I did not love my Savior's voice. I would not be controlled. Authority, right? <laughs> I resisted the authority of God." I was a wayward child. I did not love my home. I did not love my father's voice. I loved afar to, to roam. The shepherd sought his sheep. The father sought his child. They followed me over vale and hill, over deserts, waste and wild. They, fought, they found me nigh to death, famished and faint and lone. They bound me with the bands of love. They saved the wandering one. So what happens when, this, when, it, when new life comes? Here it is. Jesus, my shepherd, is... "'Twas he that loved my soul. "'Twas he that washed me in his blood. "'Twas he that made me whole. "'Twas he that sought the lost, "'that found the wandering sheep. "'Twas he that brought me to the fold. "'Tis he that still doth keep. "'I was a wandering sheep. "'I would not be controlled. "'But now I love my my shepherd's voice. "'I love, I love the fold. "'I was a wayward child. "'I once preferred to roam. "'But now I love my father's voice. "'I love, I love his home.'" The miracle of grace. Possible because Jesus paid the debt that we owe. And he paid it in full. I'm going to pray for us and we're going to stand up and sing. Jesus paid it all. Our judgment completely taken by him in its fullness. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we thank you for the good news of the gospel. Help us to live joyfully, willingly under the authority of Jesus. Admitting that we can't save ourselves, but we need a Savior. And He is the Savior we need. Help us to submit to you, your authority over us, Jesus and His authority over us. That we can know that one day we'll stand in judgment before Him. And instead of condemning us for our sins, He will say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Come into my kingdom not because of what we have done, but because we have been given his good works on our behalf because he has paid for our sin. Help us never get over the magnitude of that truth. May it drive all that we are and all that we do that we might even go to the ends of the earth to tell people there is a Savior. Come to Jesus and find life. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.